Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For a while now, many fans have asked me if there's some way to support the show directly since I don't have any of those donation links or virtual tip jars at the website. And in the past, I've just responded with, tell everyone you know about the show. Um, that would be great. So, you know, especially on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Um, but several people replied back with, why don't you make a Patreon page? And I said, what's Patreon? And they said, it's like Kickstarter, but for ongoing projects like YouTube channels and web comics and, um, and podcasts. So I looked into it and I found there were all sorts of people there that I actually really like and, and want to support like every frame of painting, uh, such a great video series. Check it out. And uh, it seems awesome. And I made a, so I made a page there and already we received enough support to add free transcripts to the show, which you'll see added to the show notes at the podcast pages uh, very soon. And uh, if you would like to see the other goals we've come up with and the rewards we're offering to supporters, just head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 41. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, which means no guest and no cookies, but we will still be celebrating self-delusion by uh, investigating the psychology of things like judgments and decision-making and reasoning itself, the neuroscience of, uh, well, you know, mental pratfalls. And uh, to um, to investigate all of that stuff um, in the next episode, I needed some space, I needed some time to put it together because the next episode is going to be uh, the biggest one yet. And I've interviewed, I've already interviewed about five people for it. And, uh, I'm actually having to do some traveling, uh, to get to other people to put a recording device between myself and them and hear what they have to say about the topic that I'm working on. And, um, you have an opportunity to be part of that next episode. Actually, if you go to the, uh, you are not so smart Facebook page, you will find a question there. And if you answer it or just sort of participate in the conversation that's happening in the comments, um, I'm going to take some of that and put it in the next episode. So the question is, have you or someone you know ever had a change of opinion about a divisive social issue after a conversation with someone who was affected by that issue? And maybe uh, you're the person who had the change take place in yourself. Maybe it was turned around, uh, but whatever, just share your stories. And I'm going to try to put that into an upcoming episode of the show. So yes, yeah, stay tuned for that. It's going to be, I, I'm really looking forward to presenting it to you. Uh, I'm having a lot of uh, fun and I'm learning a lot when it comes to um, this topic that we're going to talk about. So in this episode of the show, you're going to hear two stories. One story from the early history of psychology, the, the, one of the first investigations 
into um, human self-delusion. And the other story is, uh, well, it's a story that it's something that happened to a friend of mine and uh, it really illustrates one of the newer ideas in psychology. And I think you will enjoy both. All right. So now our first story in this episode is about the 31st time Dartmouth College and Princeton University faced off in football. And believe it or not, that game, it launched, it launched pretty much the entire study of self-delusion and uh, many other uh, expeditions into the human mind. When it comes to the psychology of preconceived notions, this is pretty much where it starts. Dartmouth and Princeton, both founded in the mid-1700s, both schools in the northeastern United States, both Ivy League. And you've probably heard of the other six schools that are also called Ivy League, Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Harvard, Penn, and Yale. And for most people in this country, that, that term, Ivy League, it's become synonymous with the sort of people who, well, we imagine that they wear fancy pants. That term, Ivy League, it actually started out as a term that sports writers used for those eight schools in New England because they tended to compete against one another exclusively in athletics and, well, you know, most everything else. And in 1951, Dartmouth and Princeton squared off in the last game of the season for both schools. So let me set the stage for you for how important this was. Princeton had won every game up until that point. Its star player, Dick Kazmaier, had been featured on the cover of Time magazine that same year and would go on to become the last Ivy League player to receive the Heisman Trophy. It was a big game for both teams, which is why Princeton went bonkers in the second quarter after a Dartmouth player broke Kazmaier's nose. After that, it just, it just got insane. You see, in the next quarter, a Princeton player snapped a Dartmouth player's leg. And the whole event, it was, it was just brutal. Both sides racked up plenty of penalties before Princeton finally won by a score of 13 to zero. So after this, in the aftermath of this, and this was something that everyone was talking about at both campuses, psychologists Albert Hastorf at Dartmouth and Hadley Cantrell at Princeton, they noticed soon after this game that the college newspapers of each school began printing stories that seemed to suggest two versions of the truth were in open competition to become the official version of reality. A year later, the two published a study that is now considered by many to be the best starting point for talking about self-delusion. Hastorf and Cantrell, they, they noticed that Princeton's newspaper and alumni newsletter published accounts of the game that painted the Dartmouth team as bullies who played dirty. At the same time, Dartmouth newspaper published editorials explaining away the injuries caused by its team while also noting the awfulness of Princeton's tactics. So both sides, these researchers, they said they remembered seeing different games. What if these students could watch that game again, thought the scientists. Sure, they remembered the game differently, but what if we showed them a film of it? Would they see the game differently in real time as well? And to answer this, the scientists acquired a recording of the entire matchup 
and they showed it to undergraduates from both schools. And they had those students check when they saw infractions. And, and in addition, they marked how severe each infraction seemed to them. The students also filled out some questionnaires. So what were the results? Well, during the film, Princeton students believed they were watching a violent, uncivilized game, and Dartmouth was to blame. 90% wrote they felt Dartmouth had started the unsportsmanlike conduct, and they also reported seeing twice as many infractions coming from Dartmouth than they saw coming from Princeton, and they found those infractions committed by their own school's team to be much milder than those committed by their school's opponents. Dartmouth students, however, they saw something else. They didn't see the game as unnecessarily barbarous, but as justifiably rough and fair. The majority of Dartmouth students reported that both teams were to blame for the aggressive play and that Princeton students were just angry because their superstar had gotten hurt. Boo hoo. These Dartmouth students they also recorded an equal number of infractions as did the other students at Princeton. They both recorded the same number of horrible incidents, but at Dartmouth, they marked half as many for their own side than did Princeton students. So the scientists, they explain what's happening here is that each person saw a different game despite the fact that all had watched the same film. Each person experienced a different version of the truth each in some way adulterated by his allegiance. And the great lesson of Princeton versus Dartmouth, it concerns how tiny and arbitrary variations can change everything. The students who watched the film, regardless of whether they had attended the real event, experienced two different versions of reality, even though on paper they all seemed like nearly identical people. As students of male-only Ivy League schools 300 miles apart in the 1950s, they were the same ethnically and socioeconomically, and as undergraduates, they were all about the same age. As Northeastern U.S. citizens, they had similar cultural and religious beliefs. The only difference between them was which school they had chosen to attend. The research suggests that if you could turn back time and have those students enroll at different schools, switching the campuses they would later stroll, their realities would also have switched. When you construct reality, you do so out of inputs, both external and internal. And to paraphrase psychologist Daniel Gilbert, Memory, perception, and imagination are representations, not replicas. The science tells us that a memory is least accurate when most reflected upon and most accurate when least pondered. And together, those two facts make eyewitness testimony basically worthless. And this isn't what most people believe. Psychologists Dan Simons and Christopher Chabri, they published a study in 2011 revealing that 63% of those surveyed in the United States believe memory works like a video camera, and another 48% believe memories are permanent, and an additional 37% said that eyewitness testimony was reliable enough to be the only evidence necessary to convict someone accused of a crime. To borrow a 
Metaphor used by V.S. Ramachandran, the great neuroscientist. Imagine that reality is a battlefield and that your conscious self is the general in a war room surrounded by lieutenants, all of which are receiving news of the world through messengers. But the whole group is trapped in that war room and only able to interact with a map of the battlefield populated by models of tanks and little toy soldiers. And that's what it's like to be a brain. You are trapped in a skull, unable to actually interact with the world outside. You depend on messages from sense organs written in code. And when you decode the messages, you alter the map and the models. But that's all you can ever hope to know about the outside world, that map and those models. The evidence gathered so far suggests that one of the most important discoveries in neuroscience and psychology is that you often mistake your interactions with the world to be direct and intimate and your sensations to be perfect replicas of the elements of the world that your senses perceive. In other words, you sometimes believe that the map in your war room isn't a map at all and that it doesn't represent anything outside of itself, but that it actually is the real world. And once you understand that the brain generates a model that is a representation of a more complex and nuanced reality, you can see that your interactions are broad and blunt, approximate and presumptuous, and probably wrong in many ways, but in the end, good enough. And that's as much neuroscience is willing to give you. Good enough. Hastorf and Cantrell, the scientists who studied the students at Dartmouth and Princeton, they said in their research that the game it didn't even exist when you get right down to it. In the same way that a salad is just a, a pile of chopped up vegetables and leaves, the game in question was just the events taking place in one space between two presses of a stopwatch. Sure, people performed actions in front of other people and the people watching noticed some of what happened, but the game itself, it's just an idea, a social construct. Out of the billions of things that occurred that day in 1951, Fans of both teams placed significance on a particular set of things happening in one location and agreed to call that thing a football game. That culturally defined significance helped observers define their experiences. And according to the scientists, unlike most things in life, sports offer up a nice lattice of rules and boundaries, a demarcated space and assigned roles that produce routine actions. In sports, Thanks to those parameters, it becomes much easier to agree on what happens during the time allotted. Yet, people routinely disagree, even when the whole thing is recorded and can be played back exactly as it occurred. What is real is not just what comes into your eyes and bounces around in your mind. You change your reality as it happens. You alter your own perception unconsciously. And the implications are monumental when you apply this knowledge to wars and politics and social movements and economics and all the other titans of influence in your life that as the scientists point out don't happen in an arena with agreed upon rules and aren't recorded perfectly by history.
portions of that story originally appeared in my book, You Are Now Less Dumb, and in an article I wrote for Boing Boing. Links to both are at the website, as well as the original research paper by the scientists at Dartmouth and Princeton titled, They Saw a Game. Up next, what happens when your brain tries to understand how a naked man can literally appear out of thin air inside your apartment while you are brushing your teeth? But first, these messages from our sponsors. Loot Crate. This is such a cool sponsor because I want this. Uh, I want my friends to get this. I know a lot of people that would love this thing. It is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. It's like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you every month with this awesome box of mystery items. You don't know what's going to be inside, but they are always curated around a theme. Sometimes it's a, a major movie or video game release that's happening, or uh, sometimes it's around a pop culture franchise that everyone knows and loves. Sometimes it's just around a trope in uh, in one of those genres. Maybe it's fear or villains or heroes or galactic uh, themed items. So for less than $20 a month, you get six to eight things. And that can include uh, gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items that are made just for Loot Crate. And uh, it's it's so cool because there's also a community of fans at the website that share their experiences and interact with each other over the unboxing of each month's crate. You can get 10% off right now by going to lootcrate.com slash smart and entering the offer code SMART. But here's, here's a direct message from the company. Here's what they want me to tell you. Here it is. With the start of 2015 upon us, we wanted the first crate of the new year to celebrate the geek and gaming icons of the past. Join us as we rewind and give you exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron. And that's not all. We are also bringing you some epic geek apparel, including an exclusive and licensed shirt so you can kick off the new year in style. And finally... Get ready to decorate your desk with an awesome retro gaming inspired mashup figure. But here's the thing you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and get what I just described to you. Because the way the service works is once that month's box is out there, that's it. There's a cutoff and it's over. So go to lootcrate.com smart and enter the offer code smart to get 10% off of any new subscription to this really awesome company called loot crate like so many of you i love learning about how our minds work finding explanations about why we behave the way we do and that's why i was fascinated by the great courses series behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide taught by professor scott who tell, I know that you will like this. If you like this show, it's full of everything that we talk about. In fact, I keep watching these episodes saying, that's going to be in the show, that's going to be in the show, that's going to be in the show. And when you think about behavioral economics, it presents you with situations like this. Let's say you need a new cable for your computer today, and you're uh, traveling, you're in a small city, and you find one at a store for $40. But someone tells you that if you just travel across town, you can get that same cable for $10. So that saves, you know, 30 bucks. Would you make that trip? I think most of us would. Now, what if you're buying a car and it costs $25,040, but someone tells you that if you stop now and go across town, you can get it for $25,010. Would you make that trip? Is it worth the hassle? Is it worth the travel? Is it worth the savings of $30? 
how can saving $30 be worth it in one scenario, but not in another? And that's the sort of stuff that you will learn about in this course. It draws on methods from psychology, sociology, neurology, and economics. He offers profound insight into how humans approach and ultimately make decisions and offers powerful and practical tools for making better, more satisfying decisions in your own life. I love this. I love all of the great courses stuff that I've seen so far, and I really enjoyed this one, and I want you to check it out too. If you're not familiar with the great courses yet, they've been around for 25 years. They have more than 500 courses on a variety of topics, engaging. They're taught by top professors and experts in their field, and you can watch or listen to them with online downloads, streaming through apps, or on DVDs, or listen to them on CDs in your car. And for a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for You Are Not So Smart listeners. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including this one, Behavioral Economics, at 80% off, 80% off. That is huge, huge, huge savings, but it's only for a limited time. So you have to really hurry and go get this right now. To order Behavioral Economics with my special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That is thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. This next story is about the devil's advocate and the interpreter inside your brain. My friend Devin Laird was brushing his teeth one morning when out of the corner of his eye he noticed his living room ceiling give birth to a large adult naked man. The man fell upside down into a wicker papasan chair amid a rain of insulation. The ceiling had ruptured and split apart like a blossoming flower and in the chaos Laird stood dumbfounded for a moment while his girlfriend yelled at the crumpled figure demanding he leave at once. The man stumbled to his feet, politely adjusted the chair upright, opened their front door, and leapt outside. He then spun on his heels and asked Laird and his girlfriend if they would be so kind as to lend him some shorts, and what followed was one of the most awkward silences in all of recorded history, promptly broken by more pointing and screaming. Realizing no one was going to fetch him some clothes, the ceiling crasher, naked and silhouetted by the morning sun, snatched a jacket from the coat rack just inside the door and ran away. They faced each other, bewildered, insulation still wafting to the floor, and waited for an explanation. And while they were waiting, their brains started doing what brains do best, making things up. An hour or so later, I was standing with a group of friends listening to Laird tell this story. Later still, I started telling his story to other people, and they started telling it to other people. And at each step, the speculation grew and grew, and eventually the story hit the local media. And then it bounced around the echo chamber from large market to even larger market until it made the rounds on national cable television as one of those news of the weird segments. You may have seen it. And every time I used to see one of those, I would think, I wonder what it's like to be part of something like that. And 
Here it was. We were experiencing it. And here's the part that was the most frustrating. By the time this story had ran out of gas and was no longer being featured on national news, there was still no official explanation. We still did not know how this happened or what was going to happen next. Now, don't worry. Today, we know the solution to the puzzle, and I will tell it to you. But savor that feeling you're experiencing before you know. And take a moment right now to speculate like we did. After this happened, I remember talking with Laird and he said that his initial thoughts while standing there with toothpaste in his mouth face to face with a naked man who had just fallen from his ceiling were that this guy was trying to burgle his apartment. Later, when they saw police cars outside and learned the crasher was wanted for parole violation, that story seemed even more plausible. We both came up with dozens of other possible scenarios. Maybe this guy was adept at the Mission Impossible style of burglary and didn't want to risk snagging his clothes on a nail. Maybe he had been living in between the walls for weeks, subsisting on rainwater and whatever he could sneak out of open pantries. Maybe he was naked because, well, maybe it was just hot in there. Maybe he was running from the police and shed his inmate garb and had slinked into an air vent and had fallen through only because he trusted what he had learned in action movies. Reading the comment threads and the internet forums right after this story hit the World Wide Web, you could see everyone else was doing the same thing. We were all creating stories, grasping for an explanation. All we had was an aftermath, and it drove us all crazy that we might not know how that man ended up on the floor of a second-story apartment adjusting furniture in a stranger's home sans clothes while covered in insulation. There has to be more to this story. We all said that in one way or another. But what we meant was there had to be a story, some story, some explanation that fit into story form. Otherwise, the world just wouldn't make sense anymore. Before I reveal the conclusion of our story, let's pause for a second and talk about the neuroscience of what's going on in your mind and what was going on in our mind when we were wildly speculating, stuck in a fog of maybes. This is how V.S. Ramachandran once explained it to me. We know, though we aren't exactly sure about the details, that somewhere in the left hemisphere, some aspect of the brain generates the narratives we use to make sense of ourselves and our lives. Things seem to have a beginning, middle, and end. Protagonists, antagonists, the past, the future, cause and effect. All of that comes together as stories, tales, narratives, explanations. But along with this left brain interpreter, there exists a devil's advocate in the right hemisphere that is sensitive to probability. When the left brain overdoes things like rationalizing and justifying and suppressing and denial and so on, the devil's advocate slaps the interpreter across the face and says, no, that is ridiculous. Try again. But if someone's right hemisphere is too damaged, the left brain becomes free to explain things however it wishes. For instance, 
The neuroscientist David Eagleman tells a story in his book Incognito about a woman who suffered a stroke and could not close one of her eyes, but she believed that she could close both of them. When a doctor asked her to close both eyes, she would actually close only one. While she was closing her eyes, believing she had both of them closed, but one was open, a doctor would ask, how many fingers am I holding up? And she would say something like, well, you're holding up three fingers. And then he would ask, look, if both of your eyes are closed, how can you tell me how many fingers I'm holding up? And the astonishing response to a situation like this is total stasis. People without a devil's advocate don't snap out of it and say, oh, well, I guess you have a point. How could that be? Instead, they say nothing, as if paused on a video. And then after a few cycles of brain processing, they come back online and continue as if the question was never answered. Now, we don't fully understand all of this yet, but we do know there is a push-pull antagonism in the human mind between a spokesperson for the organism and a lazy fact-checker who only speaks up when something seems completely impossible. Consider the story that you have already created about the man who appeared nude from the ceiling portal. This is certainly a novel situation, and as with us, your left hemisphere went right to work trying to come up with an explanation. Now, we didn't presume the guy was a secret agent spying on my friend because our right hemispheres told us that really wasn't a believable story. So what was the real explanation for the man who fell from above? Well, here you go. He was having sex with his girlfriend. Now remember, this guy was wanted by the police and he was Laird's next door neighbor. And when the cops knocked on the door, his coitus interrupted and still nude, he scrambled for a way out and saw a hatch in the ceiling of his lady's closet. He lifted the hatch, hoisted himself up into the tiny attic where he punched through a thin partition that separated her apartment space from the apartment next door. And as the wanted man squirmed from one attic to the next along the wooden supports, he slipped, planted his weight in the insulated area between two beams, and submitted to the cruel pull of gravity and the maximum load-bearing allowance of drywall. When this explanation arrived, everyone waiting to understand did what Ramachandran would have expected us to do. We pinged our right hemispheres. Is this within the spectrum of narratives I am willing to accept? Does this account of reality meet our minimum requirements for logic and continuity? Yes. Yes, we said. Yes, it does. And we were finally free to go on with our lives. And so we did. And then we ate some pie. I can't be sure about the pie, but that did happen. Everything else definitely did happen. And portions of that segment appeared in my book, You Are Now Less Dumb. And one sentence came from an article I wrote for Boing Boing. If you would like to hear Devin Laird, my friend whose ceiling gave birth to a naked man, tell that story himself. I've added it as a podcast extra 
in the patron feed over at the You Are Not So Smart Patreon page. You can find that at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. To find more great episodes of more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboing.net. If you want links to everything that we talked about in this episode or sources for any of the information that we ever talk about in any episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com and find the show notes for the episode. If you would like to listen to previous episodes of this show, you can do that at SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, or at youarenotsosmart.com. If you send me a recipe for a cookie and I bake that cookie and eat it on the show, I will send you a signed copy of one of my books and you can get more information about both books at the website. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. And I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.